Amen, amen. Let's thank the worship team for leading us this morning. Uh, there are um, certain songs in, in certain seasons that um, I think just resonate. And uh, I think there's sometimes when we, uh, we, we literally need to grab hold of a concept of who God is in a different moments in our lives. And and just to, to be able to sing that song and to declare God's holiness, um, his set-apartness in the midst of our world today is so uh, deeply needed that I, I, I literally sensed as though I could, ha- in hearing you sing a sort, of a, a, a sort of a stake in the ground, like, yes, 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 we believe this, we believe this. And, um, you know, this morning, I just, uh, thanks for being here, thanks for uh, coming and, and, and wanting and desiring both to honor God in our worship, but also uh, to learn as God is leading us so clearly. It's uh, so aware. Um, I'm so aware of that. I hope you are too. And so just get your Bibles out. Get them opened. Um, our hope, our direction comes from this and this alone. And uh, this morning, I've got just a, this message is a challenge. It is it is a challenge to the church of Jesus Christ today. And um I'll be honest, I, I think this message, particularly um, in the season in which God timed this, not me, and uh, is, um, it needs to speak to us. It's got to speak to us. It's, it's got to challenge us out of our passivity, um, out of a sort of a comfortableness that the church of Jesus Christ too often has found themselves resting in. It, it, is, it is the passage, I believe, that uh, Jesus gives right in the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount to give us a vision for how we're supposed to and, and how we're called to impact our world with the message of the gospel through good works. And so um, this is a fundamental part of kingdom culture. And so my heart and my cry and please, as I, as I, as I communicate this message today, just understand I'm going to get this confession right out of the way um, in the beginning, is that I am there with you. Like, I feel as though this truth today, we are actively wrestling with it as we lead ministry, as I think about ministry, as I think about my own life. So please hear that and know that throughout this message. Um, I'm not just preaching uh, to communicate God's truth uh, to you, but it's still doing a work in me. And so with that said, let me just pray for us. God, um, I, I, I just sense the moment and the timing of all of this, and honestly, I'm a bit in awe and um, just stirred by it, and uh, freshly um, in our world, in what I'm seeing from uh, believers, not just in our church, but outside of, um, I, am, I am burdened by uh, this uh, truth this morning, and I'm asking that it would lead us. Please, God, let it lead us. Father, forgive us for the moments when we hear a word from you and we just, we just go back to normal and um, we, we, we applaud maybe the message, we may take something away from it, but um, God, I'm asking that this word this morning would fall on hearts and that there would be a, a literally a weight that it would have and that it would, uh, through the work of your spirit, that we would not be able to escape its call. And so, God, I pray that you would lead us this morning for your glory. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This week, I, I needed um, to hear this encouragement from Mark Sayers. Mark is a, um, is a writer and a pastor who speaks on the intersection of, of faith and culture. And here's what he said. He said, yes, there are times when it appears as if the darkness is winning. When the direction of culture, the circumstances of our lives... 
the poverty of spiritual life among God's people seems tilted towards difficulty, decline, and even death rather than renewal. This is particularly true during our gray zone moment. He wrote this within the last few years. The church seems divided, the culture unraveling, and the world reeling toward chaos. Yet at moments like ours, we must remember that God has seeded the world with his dream of renewal. (laughs) And so into this cultural moment, what, what God is calling disciples like you and me to do is to literally plant seeds of renewal. How? How? What is, what is the picture of what this looks like? Well, it's going to be right here in this passage. This is part of the word and the truth that God uh, used to plant seeds of renewal, both into the disciples initially when Jesus spoke this, and then into the generations and the generations of the church. And I'm going to read it together. We're going to read it together in just a moment. But before I read it, let's remember critically important is what came right before it, which was the Beatitudes that we spent the last number of months talking about. And so let's be reminded that this passage is intended to be lived out of the character of abiding in Christ, out of the the character that the Spirit is wanting and desiring to produce in us, okay? We can't lose our sort of anchor from that uh, beginning section of this sermon, Our character is formed by abiding in Christ. It all starts by being with Christ. So with that in our minds, let's read now 13 through 16. Matthew chapter 5. You are the salt of the earth. But if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is no longer good for anything except to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. You are the light of the world. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand, and it gives light to all in the house. In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I love uh, messages, and I love to to get to passages where um, Jesus has clearly uh, taken a bit of Uh, my work out of my hands. Sometimes we all know that illustrations are really helpful for us to learn. They give us a picture or something to orient the message around, even at times a reminder, to to, kind of cue our memory to, to recall something important that God wants to communicate or has communicated. This week, I don't have to come up with the illustrations because Jesus gave them, and I'm not going to try to be like, okay, well, you know, Jesus, that was a great idea for the illustration, but I got a better one. So we're just going to use the illustrations he gave us. But there's one big move that's behind the illustrations or above them, an organizing center around which these illustrations play, and it's this big move. A call for the church is to display to the world the greatness of God's kingdom. Display to the world the greatness of God's kingdom. And these two illustrations that he gives us are a picture of how we're supposed to display the greatness of God's kingdom to the world. So, number one, first illustration, salt, and here, slow moral decay by saturating society. Slow moral decay by saturating society. We're called by Christ to be the salt of the earth. 
Now salt has a purpose, and, and you see in the passage in this verse that if, if salt d- stops fulfilling its purpose, it literally is going to be thrown out and trampled under people's feet. It's like you have a purpose. Like fulfill it or, or you're just going to be thrown out. You're going to have a sense of feeling and being useless. It's kind of a harsh illustration, honestly, but I think what we should sense in this passage and receive is that there's an urgency. There's got to be an urgency in knowing the purpose of salt and then trying to live it out. Empowered by God's Spirit, coming out of our being abide, being and abiding with Christ. See, salt, different than our world where you can find salt so easily and it's prevalent, salt had tremendous value in the culture of the New Testament because it preserved food. Like before the modern conveniences of like, of refrigeration and before food was readily available at the local grocery store, having salt to preserve food was critically important. Ancient Romans actually used salt as a currency. It, was, it, had, it had such monetary value because of what it did in preserving food. And salt, what, what it does fundamentally and chemically is salt preserves food by drawing water out. And those microorganisms that, that we never love to see showing up on our food, right? Some of you know you got some places in your house right now where there's some microorganisms taking over some food. It might be a vegetable or a, or, or a, or, or a piece of fruit and you're like, yeah, microorganisms took it over. And, and they're causing rot. And for those microorganisms to, 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 to cause rot, they have to have water to live. And where there's no water, the microorganisms struggle to live. That's what's playing out right here. Salt draws water away, and it literally slows the decay of the food. If Jesus is calling us then to be salt of the earth, then you're called to actually be a preserving agent as you come in contact with the world. We, we, we want to make contact with the world as we represent Christ in his ways. When you live as a disciple of Christ, both boldly, confidently, and joyfully. We talked about that last week because my eyes are set on heaven. It can literally draw um, the water that, that, is, that is giving life to the brokenness of the world, it can literally draw it out of the world or the earth. So, so, so by living as salt of the earth, we can draw life out of the brokenness of the world? What an opportunity. Now, 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 it, it, it will never stop or end the decay. But you can slow it. And through our example and through our witness, you can actually lead people out of the moral decay of the world to find new life in Christ. Isn't that so many of our stories in this room? To find new life in Christ and his kingdom, any slowing of decay is valuable. Can we agree on that? Any slowing of decay is valuable. Can, can you just imagine um, what would happen in our world today if, if all uh, believers were just gone? Just gone. 
Jeremiah Johnston, an author in his 2017 book, Unimaginable, What Our World Would Be Like Without Christianity, actually posed the question and studied the reality of that to give us a taste of it. Get ready. He starts by painting the picture of of what, what actually the world looked like before Christianity. He studied the records and the the history of that time and he said, first off, people just believed in random gods that that they believed they had to give some sort of offering to because those gods, if you didn't please them or placate them, that they would literally bring pain and suffering. Why? Because that was the reality of the world they experienced all the time. 25% of the population of the world was sick with disease all the time. 25% of the population were slaves and sold like animals. People were fortunate to live past 20. Raise your hand if you're older than 20 in the room. Gone. Smaller church. A little interesting if that was the case. I guess I wouldn't be here, so it wouldn't matter. When parents had a little baby, particularly a girl or a baby with any abnormality, they were normally left to die. There was a harsh oppression of women that was commonplace in this culture. Johnson makes this observation, by today's standards it was hell on earth. Poverty, sickness, premature death, domestic violence, economic injustice, slavery, and political corruption were the given of life. And we think our time is so difficult. Throughout New Testament history and church history, the followers of Christ have written about, spoken about, and lived out God's truth in the world. Like, think about just the significance of Galatians 3.28, where Paul wrote into this culture, there is neither Jew nor Gentile, neither slave nor free, nor is there male and female. Do you see what he was speaking into? For you are all one in Christ Jesus. The influence of this verse alone And so many others like it in the New Testament when it was spoken and written about and lived out by believers literally impacted how women were treated and perspectives on slavery historically. It slowed moral decay by saturating society. Then and now. We're called to be salt of the earth. And there are hundreds of other examples throughout history Remember this critical principle, for salt to be effective, it must come in contact with the earth. And so this is not to scale. This little globe that I got from Pastor Jeremy's office. But I just want to paint just a really simple illustration from this. When it says that we're called to be salt of the earth, this is you and me, this is not enough. To be like, I got close. You know, I'm just, I'm just, I'm just over here. I'm just gonna, I'm just gonna say something on social media. Okay, that's it. That's all I'm gonna do. I got close enough to the earth. It also is not enough for us to gather together and be like, oh man, I love your salt. Your salt is so, it has such potential to be a preserving agent. And, and we, and look, we're just salting each other with the salt that Jesus has given us with the truth of the gospel. This is not enough. It's not enough for us just to, just to study salt and talk about how much we love it and how it's preserved our lives. 
When Jesus says and calls us to be the salt of the earth, he's like, all of us should be so compelled by the way it's preserved our life for eternity that we're like, how much can I get it on the earth? Not near the earth, not next to the earth, on the earth. Salt is only working if it's poured out on the earth, saturated. Saturated, that's the mission God has for us. If you're not of the earth, then you've lost your saltiness. If you're isolated away from the world, then you cannot fulfill this part of your identity. And and into that, I would say that I think one of the greatest dangers of the church today is that it can unintentionally lead Christians to withdraw from the world. It is a crisis that we have become so anxious and fearful about the world, so I don't know, outwardly disgusted by it that we've actually withdrawn from the very place that God's called us to. We're content with just having our right theology and singing our songs together and then just going home. We, we find ourselves consumed with just trying to find more time to hang out with Christians because honestly, when we get around the world, we feel a tremendous amount of insecurity. We... we We consume more and more Christian content, almost at this sort of never-ending reality, uh, with no plan or desire even to make disciples or engage the world to show them the love of Christ. Because being salt requires sacrifice. It requires sacrifice. We gotta saturate, it requires deeper love and endurance, deeper graciousness, deeper communion with God. And it won't be comfortable. And, and we're not, nothing is being gained by, by just moaning and complaining and having angst about the decay. Why are we frustrated or angry with sinners being sinners? When you come in contact with the world, you're coming in contact with something that's decaying. And like if, if I set a piece of meat out, like I couldn't even put the pictures of, rotten, of rotting meat on the, on the screen for fear that it would cause uh, collective nausea. But it's gross. And that's just a picture. I can't imagine. I've had a few moments, a few moments. Any parent knows the, the smell of rotten milk that comes in that little cup when it gets underneath a, a seat in the car. And you're like, why does my car stink? You're like, oh, the milk cup. Of course it's not going to be comfortable. God's like a salt of the earth. You're supposed to come in contact with that. But there's also so much potential. God could use your contact with the world to literally preserve someone from the moral decay. Maybe for a moment and then maybe for eternity. Yield to God. And let him take your life and literally shake it out over the earth. Whatever context in the midst of this world that he holds in his hand, whatever context that he's given you right there on the, on, 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 on the shores of West Michigan where God has given you that context to be, shake your life out. Rally with other believers, not just to rally with believers as the end, but to become formed into disciples that would be the salt of the earth. And remember that, that we maintain our saltiness, this, 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 this like desire that comes, this, 
this sort of stirring that comes in our souls comes because we're communing with God together. Because we get a vision as we're together of God's love for the world and we understand how it's impacted our life and all we want to do is be salt of the earth. Where in your life are you being salt of the earth? Where? I was at our student retreat yesterday morning teaching because I love our students. And um, honestly, I wanted to stay there. I didn't want to leave. Because I, I saw just the, the lives that are being intersected. There's a, a number of students that don't even come to our church. And as I heard some of their stories, I was just like, man, this is, this is salt of the earth. These leaders, what's happening, these students, it's, it's, it's really beautiful. And this is a core identity of the disciples of Jesus, to be salt of the earth. You're, you're called to it, slow moral decay by saturating society. That's, that's the first illustration that Jesus gives us. Let's look at the second illustration. Now, light, light display the distinct difference of God's kingdom. This is the spirit of this illustration that Jesus gives us is light. So if the Bible's talking about light, here's the thing. I, I, I couldn't um, bring like a flashlight or a light bulb up because it's really done. It's not the picture of what, of what Jesus is talking about here. Um, you, you can't think about sort of electricity or, or a light bulb to get the sort of picture. It, in New Testament times, light was most often, particularly the light that's being illustrated here, that would have been put on a stand to light an entire home in a different a ways. Light was most often produced by oil lamps. It would have looked like this. Here would have been the closest depiction of what that would have looked like. And when you understand that the illustration is this, suddenly the beauty and the layers of this illustration start to come and you become aware of them. Let me break it down. First, the fuel for the lamp was oil, which is incredibly significant biblically. Some of you know where I'm going with this because of your study of God's word, oil was significant because oil is the picture of the, of the blessing and favor of God. Hebrews 1 refers to the oil of gladness. There would have been a sense of oil as a, this sustainable fuel that would have come alive or brought warmth or light. People were anointed with oil in certain circumstances when praying for healing. It was a, it's a symbol of God's favor. Having oil in your lampstand in Matthew 25 was used to talk about a consistent faithfulness to proclaiming the gospel. That's this picture of oil. Oil's the fuel. See, church, what God offers us in relationship with the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit as we engage the Trinity, as we abide in God, we receive the, the literally the oil of blessing. You understand that, like when you're, when you're with God and he's shaping your perspective and you're drawing near to him, there's literally the oil of blessing being poured into your soul and into your heart. And then through faith, the oil is poured into your heart through this miraculous work of God's spirit and each day as you live by faith, as you live out the good works that God has for you, you literally in that moment, what you're doing is you're igniting the oil that then produces light. Do you see the illustration now? 
When you see that illustration, you both can understand how God produces the light, how the source is God, and the sustainable reality of this. The light is Christ at work on the human heart, and it's shown to the world in our good works. That's the evidence. And, and here's what I love about this, is that our lives, like all we are, is we're just, we're just like the vessel. We're the vessel. We are just the container that God, through his mercy and grace, pours in the oil. And through our work of faith, basically out of response to the potential that God has put within us, that we take hold of by faith, is what ignites it into a light that can provide both light and warmth. And the final result here is pretty amazing if you look at the end of verse 16. Look at, look at the final end point of all this. Is it, oh man, our lives are so peaceful and good and happy and without any pain or suffering? No, you can't ignore verses 10 through 12 and believe that in verses 13 through 16. Look at the end, church. The end of this is glory to your Father who is in heaven. We don't get the glory. Hey, we're just vessels. We're just vessels. And, and all we want to do is take what God has given us and poured into our hearts, and we just want to get that ignited, and we just want to get it before the world so that they can see our good works. We want them to see the light. We want them to feel the warmth. And then we want them to start asking questions. And we want it to lead them to the Father. Your Father who is in heaven. You may not know this, but that phrase um, is incredibly significant. Your Father who is in heaven. You might want to write this down and, and look at this later. Because it's the first time in the gospel that God is referred to as Father. It occurs 16 times in the Sermon on the Mount and 44 times in Matthew. Okay? Pretty significant. And what it's communicating is it's communicating this revolutionary reality of God's intimate and relational nature. In a world that so often saw God's as these, as these um, far-off controllers of reality but not accessible in the very beginning of the sermon on the mount as jesus is training his disciples he's uh, communicating to them the importance of your father who is in heaven if you want to accurately display the distinct difference of god's kingdom people must see god from your life as a loving father and not as, as, a, as a as sort of a slave master, not as some tyrannical, a wrathful God that, that I'm doing right because I'm so scared of his response to me if I don't. But, but the end of all of this is for us to allow the world to see from our good works that we're doing this out of the joy and affection that we have for God. That, that we know and we proclaim that God is abounding in mercy and full of grace. That, that, that we follow a God longing for people to draw near to him, not to be intimidated by him. Light to the world. It's a beautiful and, and powerful illustration. Again, the point is clear in this passage, isn't it? Like, it can't be hidden. Don't put it under a basket. Like, 
put it on a stand. God is calling you to let your light shine before others so they can see your good works. Now, what this doesn't mean is it doesn't mean that we're like gloating about what we've done in a prideful way. It doesn't mean like, look, look, at, look, at, look at what I've done. I am so impressive. Like, how can we do that? We're just a vessel. Like, we're just that we're like piece of pottery. The beauty and the power has come from God. You should look to let your light shine before others. You want it to be so clear, so distinct, so set apart that people are like, you are different. In my testimony, who many have heard it in the midst of step one, like I, as people assimilate to our church, like I tell people all the time, I got led to the gospel because I saw something in this woman that I worked with that I was like, she's different. She, she loves differently. She responds differently. She has a joy that doesn't seem shaken. That's so different than what I've seen. She's so loving and caring towards me and others. There's something different. And, and, and so what we want people to see is the light because we know the light is Jesus. It's what Jesus declared in John 9. I'm the light of the world. Jesus knows the only hope is not that people mimic your good works. I think sometimes in the church that's what we want. We just want the world just to mimic our good works. To believe what we believe, vote like we would vote, and we're going to be all good. We're going to bring in heaven on earth. You really don't understand the depravity of sin if you believe that at any level. What God wants to lead people to is himself. Make sure and evaluate that, that your good works are actually pointing people to Jesus. Big challenge for the church today, trust me. We're not just declaring our biblical convictions. Start by leading people to Christ. Uh, we're, we're not being a light to the world when we give our efforts and our energy to try to convert people to right biblical thinking or right biblical actions without Jesus. Instead, show the world that Christianity, discipleship, is more than just living a certain way, more than saying no to specific sins, and certainly more than voting a specific way. Obedience without relationship to Jesus is not biblical Christianity. Jesus died on the cross because people who believed that couldn't handle his message and killed him for it. Biblical Christianity is a compelling, consuming, love relationship with Jesus Christ that so, so stirs my heart that, that good works flow naturally out of the overflow of the goodness of God to me in relationship. Show the world that the story of the gospel is the most beautiful, enduring, dramatic love story. A story of a savior who loved you and and was captivated by you and wanted you to be captivated by his majesty and that he captured your heart. Show them that you are nothing more than a vessel, but a vessel redeemed to display God's glory. Forgiven, restored, and reconciled. Show them the source of your good works in Christ. Show them good works that expect no response. Look for nothing in return, but simply continues to pour out, overflowing, because you seem to have tapped into an exhaustible supply of that love.
That's gospel. That's biblical Christianity. And we should long for it. Not religion, not tradition, but Jesus. If you want to show people, the world, the distinct difference of God's kingdom, then they must know Christ first. And if they don't, they're going to act like the world. And it's going to stink. Display the distinct difference of God's kingdom. Okay. So let's just, let's just, let's take a moment and let's just process this reality of God's call for us to be salt of the earth and light to the world. And let's, like I promised last weekend, let's just apply this issue, um, let's apply this to the issue of the sanctity of life. Yes. Proposal 3 unfortunately passed. 55.5% supported it. What would the percentage have been if, if no Christians were voting? So how do we respond in this? How do we respond? We respond just like God's informed us. He's given us the illustrations for the response. Salt of the earth, light to the world. Here's what we should avoid. We should avoid anger or frustration. That's not drawing anybody to the church. It's showcasing that you're operating from a deficit, both in your perspective on heaven and in a lack from the Lord that would center your heart and life. Avoid withdrawing and giving up also. Avoid lashing out in anger on social media or even among other Christians, to be totally honest. I was so thankful for some of the tenderness that I heard this week from last week's message that, that there was just a sense that God was centering people's hearts. Like, we're good. God's in control. Don't display your disgust or frustration with the world to the world. It's not helping the cause of Christ. Vengeance is the Lord's, not yours. You're wasting your energy and your opportunity for good and it could honestly lead you over time to become so frustrated that you just pull away from the world. I've seen the pattern in my own life and in yours. Instead, anchor your hope in heaven like God encouraged us last week from his word. Eyes on eternity. Let joy return to your heart and soul. Like yes, there's a sense of right grief and even confusion and maybe even a bit of disappointment, but we gotta return rightly to what the gospel offers us. Listen, anytime you vote on anything in the context of the world, remember what Jesus said in Matthew 7, for the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life and those who find it are few. Anytime an entire population is given the opportunity to give their opinion or give their vote, the true believers are always going to be the minority. Hey, Jesus taught us that. Why do we walk around surprised by these things? We'll never be the majority this side of heaven. That's why we long for heaven. Why do we spend so much energy trying to be the majority? Will that make Jesus more true to eyes that have not been open to the truth of who he is? Or will it just make us feel better about being a Christian? Do we believe that if we somehow gain the majority that then at that point finally will experience peace and joy. Here's what I believe from scripture. If any popular opinion or votes line up with God's truth, it will only be temporary before the world draws it back the wrong direction. That's what we have in front of us in this life. 
Yes, let's vote as citizens of God's kingdom, like I talked about last week. And let's respond as citizens of God's kingdom. (laughs) Then, as salt of the earth, let us continue to stay in contact with the earth. No, no, not sort of caricaturing them and then finding ourselves in some sort of moral superior place. But stay in contact to literally continue to curb moral decay. But please, church, we have to move beyond voting. What I did last week in voting, it was cheap, it was easy, and it required zero sacrifice. Put that little sticker on, everybody applauds you, regardless of how you voted. The love of God will lead us to more, will lead us to good works empowered and directed by the love of God and his example. Be salt and light. Yes, the decay of the world stinks, but don't move from engaging the world. Yes, the darkness is dark, but we have to continue to shine our light boldly. Righteousness calls us in the spirit of the good Samaritan who saw the need of the person and all the religious people went past them. Apparently, they were just kind of, they had, they had done their due, whatever they thought their work was supposed to be. Maybe they had just finished voting, and they were just walking home, figuring like, nailed it. And the good Samaritan was like, no, 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 no. I'm going to that person. And I'm going to show them mercy in all aspects of their life, and I'm going to sacrificially love those who are helpless. Here are some beautiful gospel-centered ways to respond to the sanctity of life. Decide to be a foster parent. Adopt a child. Look for an opportunity in your world to sacrifice to provide for a mother who has decided to keep her child despite financial and practical challenges. Care for children and students in the ministries of our church who come from unstable and unbelieving homes. I promise you, it's a reality. Support and serve in compassion ministries to care for the helpless and needy in our society right now. When that's the character of the response of the church of Jesus Christ, when we're honestly living as disciples, then and only then will we start to live in the beautiful prophetic vision of Psalm 37, 1 through 6, which says, Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass. Get this up. I think it's the next passage. I want everyone to see it. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust in the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. This, this, this. Is, is a prophetic vision of the psalmist and the reality of this and the access to this that we have in the gospel is so plentiful. To those of us who, who sit in a, in a season and time and world when we are oftentimes more insulated from the reality of the world than we actually even realize. Light of the world display the distinct difference of God's kingdom. Salt of the earth, slow moral decay by saturating society. Display to the world the greatness of God's kingdom. And listen, 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 this message. Man, I was just confronted by this this week. 
Like, like this is a challenge in our day. It causes you to ask if you receive it, like, where do we want to give our time and energy? I'm, I'm wrestling with this question like, like you should as a follower of Jesus. We have everything in the gospel for, for now and for eternity. We have the gift that's greater than any gifts in a season when we just try to get the gift that will please someone temporarily. We're wrestling with this subject, this question, where do we want to give our time and energy? We're wrestling with this as church leadership. It is a tension that we are feeling and wrestling with. We're asking the question, are we really making disciples that are salt and light? We have to ask these questions. We, we, we can't take this passage and just go, well, sweet, we're on to the next passage next week, and, and this one will just like become something in the memory bank of the disciple. So I want you to, I want you to pray for us. I want you to pray for us uh, collectively, individually, for your own life, that you would wrestle with this, spend time thinking carefully and slowly, continue to pray. Reach out to us if you want to engage in this conversation. This is the conversation we're having now. A few months ago, we talked about this sort of season of slowing down to sort of assess some things. And God's bringing questions like this right to the center of the conversation. And we cannot just brush it uh, aside or, or believe that we're going to get there by doing the things that the church has always done because it's not getting anywhere. It's not moving forward. In some pockets, yes, and they're so beautiful and captivating to us that we want more of that. For more people in our church and more deeply into our area. This week, continue to process this message carefully. It's a really important a time in our history. What ways of thinking about church and you as a disciple need to change, what ways of, of living need to change so that we can actually intersect the world with the good works of God? Will it demand sacrifice and inconvenient change to your life and priorities? Uh, a yes, of course it will. Of course it will. But you shouldn't be surprised by that because the example is set by Jesus. His love for the world compelled him to enter into our world. To, to come in contact with the world in all of our smelliness and to shine the light of the gospel and to draw people out of the decay of this world. Being salt and light cost him his life and his example. Not tradition in the church, not the expectations that I've lived with for however long I've been in the church and been a disciple of Jesus Christ. His example is the one we should follow. Let's pray together. God, I sense more than ever and I even see the fruits of it beautifully in our church in different pockets. And I feel the weight and the responsibility both to respond rightly as a disciple and to lead in the way you've called me and gifted me in this church. The world is watching. It's watching. 
it's looking. And I think even past the, the harshness and the pain and the suffering, they want to believe. They want to believe that there's a source of hope that doesn't move. As political seasons rush past, as depravity grows, as isolation increases, as anxiety and depression are on the rise, I believe the world that's, wa- that's watching really wants an answer. They want something and I look up and down the rows of the people that you've brought together in this church and I'm not satisfied by the fact that we're sitting in seats in a church. God, because your heart for them is for them to move into the earth to be in contact with your people, the people that you've created, all of them, and to bring the hope of the gospel and to showcase them the love of Jesus Christ and to let people see the anchor that the gospel is constantly and then we'd intersect people's lives and we'd look for ways to love them. And we'd live with our lives anchored in that gospel, not trying to find an anchor in the world, but knowing that when we get to that world, it's gonna be an up and down reality. And so give us endurance in that, God. Give us vision. I believe, God, this message cannot leave us because it's the example of your life and I thank you for it. I thank you for the way it's changed my life and so many here today. I pray it would continue to change lives. I pray you'd use us powerfully, God. And in that, I pray, just like your passage said, that that what we would see like we're already seeing begin to play out. Like I believe, God, even in being there yesterday is playing out in our children's ministry, in our student ministries. I believe, God, as people are coming to our church, they're beginning to see and give glory to you our Father who is in heaven. And to that end, I ask more, God, more glory to you. Work in us, God. Convict us through the power of your Spirit. Let it lead to substantive change in the way that we think and live. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.